Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. This week, we're joined with the wonderful Dr. Sophie Chow. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you so much for being in conversation with me, Kate. Oh, I'm so excited to hear more about your work and for our audience to learn more about you and your work. Um, so I was wondering if we could start by you introducing yourself. Absolutely. And I'm joining you today um, from the unceded lands of the Gadigal people I'm here in Australia, where I work and live. And I want to start by paying my respects to uh, Gadigal elders, past, present and emergent. And I also want to pay my respects to Gadigal kin, both human, animal, vegetal and elemental. So I'm Sophie Chow, I'm uh, French and Chinese, um, I'm an environmental anthropologist and multi-species scholar. Um, I work at the University of Sydney, and most of my research focuses on human-plant relationships in Indonesia, where I've been doing long-term ethnographic fieldwork over the course of the last decade, uh, and working very closely with Indigenous communities um, who have long entertained intimate and ancestral kinships with plant plants, um, but who are now seeing many of those relationships uh, transformed by large-scale landscape transformation including oil palm plantation developments. Uh, I love to work with activists and artists and practitioners. Um, I'm a multimodal anthropologist. I like to experiment with words, but also with film. Um, I'm keen to work towards decolonial modes of producing knowledge together with others beyond the ivory tower and mostly with my plant companions. Wonderful. Um, so I think I might start off with a difficult question, or at least interviewees on the podcast find it generally difficult. Um, what is your favorite plant if you have one and why? It's such a great question, Kate. Um, I mean, it's going to be really hard for me to pick the one plant um, because, of course, they're all relational. Um, but uh, I think I think I have to go with eucalyptuses, um, Kate. I live in Australia. Um, eucalyptuses surround me where I live, um, just at the foot of the Karingai Chase National Park. They're an iconic um, endemic um, Australian plant being. Um, they produce one of the most fragrant oils um, that I have ever had the privilege to smell and that has also a whole bunch of curative and th therapeutic um, valences and purposes. Um, eucalyptus trees are the environment and habitat for most of Australia's um, wildlife, including birds, cockatoos, lorikeets, um, kookaburras, and many, many more. Uh, and they're just gorgeous. Um, they're gorgeous beings. They're gnarled and, um, you know, they all have shapes that are almost more than plants. Uh, some resemble animals, others resemble statues, and they cover the bush. Um, they release these fragrances that change depending on what time of the day your bush walking. So for me, the eucalyptus is emblematic of the, Antipo the Antipodian continent. Um, and it's a plant that also is incredibly resilient and has learned over millennia to adapt to this continent's often quite extreme climactic and weather conditions. So it's a survivor. Um, it's a it's it's xerophile. Um, it knows how to live with intensity and intensifying environments. Um, and, and most of all, it's a plant that long 
that has long had um, deep significance also within Indigenous Australian cosmologies uh, as a spirit being, as a totem being, as a kindred being. Um, so for all those reasons, the eucalyptus um, has a particular place in my heart and in my mind. What has your experience kind of situating you as a person in the world? Um, how has your relationships with plants developed? Were you always aware of plants? Um, were they always a part of your family or and community? Or did you come to a greater awareness of them later in life? Hmm. So I really wasn't attuned to the doings and beings and becomings of plants um, for most of my childhood and most of my growing up, actually, Kate. And in part, that was because I grew up in Hong Kong, uh, a big cosmopolitan city. Until the age of 12, I believe that the sky was a geometric shape because I had only ever seen it cut out by the silhouettes of skyscrapers. And it was when I traveled to Tibet when I was 12 um, that I realized that, in fact, no, the sky is expansive and endless and horizonless, and it goes on and on and on. And at the time, as a 12-year-old kid, uh, that was actually a terrifying thought, right? Um, and um, so, you know, that kind of attunement um, and learning to notice plants and become aware of them is only something I really began cultivating um, later in my life and primarily through my anthropological research um, in Papua, where I was working with forest um, dependent forest dwelling indigenous communities. And it was primarily them who were my instructors, my mentors, my teachers, my guides in learning to notice, to appreciate, to be to come into relationship with plants in a way that my childhood in Hong Kong had never really, really instilled in me. So a relatively new apprenticeship and one that in many ways transformed my, yeah, my, my sense of the environment in which I've been. Um, and yeah, it's through those long-term field experiences in a very, very different part of the world to the one that I was used to and the one that I grew up in. Yeah. And going off of that, what was that apprenticeship like like how did you first kind of start those interactions with plants like were there certain senses that were more engaged or certain plant relationships that stood out to you more um yeah how was how were some of those relationships with plants first formed so, you know, when I first went out to the field um, to do my, 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 my research um, as a PhD student, I had, you know, I came armed with all of my ethnobotany manuals and my Linnaean classifications and all the textbooks I'd read about, you know, how plants are sorted and identified and so forth. And I was, I was after names, right? I was after lists. I was after taxonomies. And it became very clear to me very early on, very early on in my fieldwork that that wasn't necessarily the most fruitful way to come to know plants. And I learned this because I'd be asking people the names of plants, you know, when we were having conversations in the village and people were really confused. You know, like they were like, well, we're not, we need, if you want to know this plant, we need to go hang out with it. We need to go meet it. They would use the word meet it, right? Um, like it was a person. And in fact, they do talk about plants as persons. And so I realized that you couldn't talk about plants in the abstract. Uh, you actually had to go out there into the forest, into the bush, and be with the plant, be in its presence, observe it, touch it, smell it, 
sometimes taste it, all of the senses became tools um, or, or methods for coming to be in relation with these vegetal beings, right? So they don't exist in the abstract as conceptual categories. They exist as fleshy material entities. So going out there was, you know, the first um, part of my apprenticeship, walking to the forest, walking to the encounter of these plant beings. And then, you know, being, being an encounter with plants and particularly those who have central significance in the worlds of the particular indigenous community whom I was learning from, the Marine peoples of West Papua, uh, meant again, using your body as a method, right? So um, one of the ways in which that manifests was through observation, learning how to read past events, floods, fires, parasitic epidemics through the textures of the bark of particular trees or the dents in their roots or the color of their fronds and foliage. Histories are inscribed in the very materiality of these plants. Pasts are embedded in that materiality. One also comes to know plants among marine through sound. Why? Because plants themselves might not produce sounds, but they are actually animated by all kinds of bioacoustics or living acoustics by virtue of the other beings, the birds, the mammals, the rodents who coexist with these plants and entertain symbiotic relationships with them. So knowing a plant also means knowing how to recognize the sounds of bird of paradise in the canopy. It means recognizing the grunts of wild boars who will come and feed at the base of these trees and the soil is very rich in 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 humus and sort of detritus it means learning to recognize the particular inflections of rivers that ebb and flow around the roots of sago palms that tend to grow in sort of marshy mangrovey sort of areas so sound is another way in which surprisingly perhaps one comes to know plants as relations as ecosystems as as members of broader communities of life in the forest and um, and taste i would say was another way in which i came to know plants um why because the sago palm for instance um is a source of the main starch or carbohydrate in the marine people's diet and um, sago flour which is extracted from the trunk of these of these trees so knowing the taste of sago you know through the taste of sago flour you come to know a little bit also about the health of this plant and um, about um, the degree to which it was um, sustained by more or less um, reciprocal relationships with its environment, right? A dry and bland flower means that something, some kind of ecosystemic imbalance was part of the life story of this plant. Whereas a rich, dense, and um, you know, flavorsome starch suggests that there was an equally rich um, relationship with other beings that made that starch flavorful in the first instance. So taste and taste buds are also an interesting way in which you can come to know plants, perhaps not as living entities, but through the produce um, that then um, feed and fuel the people who rely on them and cultivate them. That's amazing. <laughs> Just trying to envision like having those types of experiences, like in my own kind of context, it sounds really really connective and you know just it sounds like there's just so much to learn and experience in those situations absolutely I mean it's such a multifaceted experience to be with and learn from France um in Papua where I've been working um it's also um you know the, the the sort of respect and reverence that accompanies so many of these acts of observation and attunement is absolutely central to the story um these are also relationships that are affected by gender um so for instance different plant beings are or have closer ties to men or to women to youth or to elders right so depending on who you're learning from among 
amongst your human instructors, you're also going to get a different account of what it means to live with this plant and what this plant's histories and stories are and the kind of futures that it makes possible across the, you know, um, across intersections of age and gender and so forth. So the story keeps multiplying as the plant becomes the storyteller, who becomes the river, who becomes the tree kangaroo, who becomes the bird of paradise, who becomes the anthropologist, who then becomes a text that hopefully tries to do some justice to the richness of these textures and terrains. Yeah, um, that leads beautifully into a major kind of focus of the network. Um, so networking with plants in the Anthropocene is kind of a hodgepodge group of um, folks that are artists, some are academics, some are just people who love plants <laughs> and don't have necessarily advanced degrees. Um, but one of the major areas of interest um, when the group kind of started coming together and talking about some of the things we'd like to do as a group is explore what respect for plants is. Um, and so that's another question that we like to ask folks on the podcast. Um, what does having respect for plants mean to you? And how is it embodied? That's a wonderful question, Kate. Um, and just I also want to, as an aside, say how wonderful it is that you are leading or curating this collective of thinkers and doers and tinkerers um, who may not be experts in the conventional sense of the term, but who are all experts in their own right, in their own ways and through different ways of knowing. Um, and networking is so important in that respect, you know, across these different bodies of knowledge and um, networking or maybe branching out might be another way of putting it. Um, wow. Yeah. Respect for plants so my, you know I often think with um the feminist theorist Donna Haraway um when it comes to respect because she's written some really wonderful work um inviting us to return to the etymology of the word respect that funnily enough has the word spect which comes from species embedded at the very heart of it right to respecere uh, involves some kind of consideration of species other than our own so there's already a kind of more than human dimension at the heart of the word and then you know one would hope of the practice um so you know for me respect um it's a relationship right um or more than that it's a stance um particularly when it comes to plants that acknowledges that we do not exist as individuated, autonomous, bounded wholes, but rather as relations from the outset, right? Um, plants make so much of our worlds possible. Um, they embed ourselves in our worlds and they make us dependent on their worlds in so many ways that perhaps we are, you know, less willing to acknowledge. You know, we, we think about us domesticating them, but we are also domesticated or enrolled or enlisted into plant worlds into all kinds of exciting ways. Um, for me, so respect is about relationality. For me, respect when it comes to plants is also about um, alterity, right? Um, so a lot of my work has tried to grapple with the ethical stakes of being in relation with plants and trying to understand or apprehend their perceptual life worlds and what matters to them, whilst also maintaining a certain respect for the fact that we will probably never truly know what it's like to embody the life world of a plant. And that maybe respecting that not knowingness is part of the humility that we need to practice as humans, right? And I'm thinking here, of course, in the bigger picture of an age of ecological unraveling where human hubris and activity is undermining conditions of life at a planetary scale. So humility for me is also very much tied into respect, and particularly the respect of difference and alterity as something that's 
um, you know, can be apprehended and is perhaps sometimes insurmountable. And that's and that that's OK. Right. The, the trying matters. But um, there is a point where perhaps difference is something to be respected rather than overcome. So that's a second element. Um, for me, respect for plants is also something um, that, uh, you know, that it animates not just our relationships with plants as living organisms, but also with their afterlives. So many of us will come to know plants, not necessarily in the forests where they dwell or in the monocultures where they grow more or less naturally. Um, we will come to know them through the products that we consume, the foods that we eat and the materials that clothe us and the cosmetics that, uh, you know, clean us. Um, you know, your palm oil, your cotton, um, your hemp, um, your your wheat. Um, so um, knowing, knowing plants as commodities is also for me part of the stance or the, the ethos of respect that we need to cultivate, right? Because perhaps there are also ways um, in which our everyday decisions as consumers uh, might be part of ways of respecting plants through what they make possible for us, um, including the relations of extraction and extinction that are always already part of so many uh, plants as commodities stories, right? Um, we are individual consumers. There's perhaps not much we can do. Perhaps taking a moment, um, pausing, thinking about those multi-sided supply chains that are part of what make these products possible does matter, right? They are micro kind of microbiopolitical acts of respect and staying with the trouble to return to another phrase from Donna Haraway, right? Uh, and I think respect can also be part of that story. Um, and perhaps then also the springboard for more collective acts of, um, of, of engagement or praxis or, um, or, or, or radical um, agency that can push against some of the status quo when it comes to the industrial supply chains that, you know, transform certain plants into pure crops and commodities and in doing so, in some ways, rob them of their agency or autonomy as historical actors, as multi-species protagonists and as consequential, consequential beings um, in more than human worlds. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it makes me think there's just so much work to do. <laughs> in kind of like, <laughs> both like learning stories and recovering memories from relationships that used to exist that have been broken by some of these like changes in the way that we relate to plants um and the scales that we relate to them but also imagining possibilities for what alternatives might look like so absolutely as you say it's a lot of work we can't do it alone. We need to do it with other human collectives and with plant collectives as well. And the challenge can often seem indomitable. Um, I mean, there are definitely moments in my work where I sort of feel somewhat paralyzed by a kind of politics of despair uh, in the face of so many structural forms of violence that unevenly affect humans and plants um, across the world and, and across time. Um, but, uh, you know, plants as emblems of relationship teach us the lesson of relation, right? And that this work has to be done relationship in relation and with others. So um, we need to hold each other, branch out, hold together, compost our ideas and our creativities together and look for alternative futures, as you say, or counter plantation futures, right? Counter monoculture futures, futures that are anchored in an embracing of diversity and of difference of species, of, of cultures and so forth. And that's the dialogue. That's the space where the richest seeds are going to germinate. And I, I do think that there are very much possibilities for that. And um, for me, Indigenous scholars and activists and communities like the ones whom I have the privilege to work with and learn from are the ones who teach me that. I mean, if they haven't given up hope, then who am I to give up?
definitely. Um, speaking of your work, um, how would you describe your work? Um, so if someone wasn't familiar with kind of your, what it is that you do, because <laughs> we have a number of different listeners, like some of our listeners are academics, some are artists, um, and some are just folks that like plants and so or love plants um, more like practitioners in a number of different um, contexts and so how would you describe the work that you do um, with plants uh, what do you do and what do they do fabulous question Kate um, so I, I would probably describe my work as uh, anchored first and foremost in the method of ethnographic field work. Um, so this is sort of, you know, a mainstay of my discipline, anthropology, which means um, going to a place or community and living in that place and with that community for a prolonged period of time to really try to embed yourself in the everyday life of this more than human um, environment and try to understand that world from their perspective plant and human. So for me, that entailed living for two years um, in the rainforests of West Papua in Indonesia, among marine peoples, um, and trying to understand from their perspectives um, and through their experiences, both you know, psychological, emotive, cultural, bodily, what it means to live in a place where plants are kin, where plants are revered as ancestors, but also a place where multi-species entanglements are being radically undermined by deforestation and industrial oil palm expansion, right? So I'm trying to understand what does violence look like in these plant-human relationships? What possibilities of care can we unearth in these um, spaces of conflict between techno-capitalist expansion and indigenous knowledges and wisdoms? And what can indigenous philosophies of multi-species justice teach us about what it means to be in relationship with more than human worlds in this age of climate change and ecological unmaking, right? Um, and a big part of that research um, is also about trying to, um, you know, not posit indigenous ways of being as something from the past that we have to reanimate in some ways. Uh, I mean, that comes tethered with all kinds of problematic ethics around who does the animating and, and, and questions of power and privilege, but rather to think that, you know, to invite attention to the fact that these indigenous practices of um, coexistence um, have always existed. They continue to endure, survive and persist. Uh, and that um, we have so much to learn from these ways of being, right, um, together. Uh, in a way that is about reckoning and repair, but that is also about building new kinds of collectives um, across space, across time, and to ultimately realize that a deeper attunement to what plants have to offer um, will ultimately enrich all of our worlds. Um, the capitalist nature culture binary that so much of climate change related destruction is tethered to is a deeply impoverished way of living in the world. And um, to assume or insist on that separation and diminishes the textures and possibilities of enjoyment, of pleasure, of play, um, of joy that we might entertain were we to become more attuned to plant worlds and plant doing. So a lot of my research is also, research is also about um, rekindling forms of play and pleasure that we have lost ourselves as, you know, people of the global north or westerners, you know, those are problematic categories, but um, the forms of play that we have lost as a result of the capitalist colonialist logics that have shaped and um, the kind of productionist or productivist ethos and that is at the heart of so much of the worlds that we inhabit and, and the worlds that we ourselves in some ways produce and transform. Smith. So um, it's about um, it's about 
rekindling joy in in a sense of bodily ourness and 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 kinship across cultural and sort of um, geographic divides. So. What do plants teach me that? I mean, I, I hope that some of the plant voices have come through in that, um, in the sense that plants teach us about relationships. They are, um, they refuse individuation. Uh, plants are resilient in so many ways, um, at the same time as plants are vulnerable to anthropogenic violence. In that sense, they're perhaps not that different to us in the long durée of climate change, which ultimately would position all of us as vulnerable to changes that are beyond our control, right? Um, some scholars talk about this ecological crisis as the epoch in which humans have gained ultimate control over planetary systems. One could equally argue that it's the absolute downfall, right? This is Gaia telling us that in fact, we're, we're not in control, we've lost control, and we need to learn something from that process. So plants can help teach us some of those lessons as well. Um, and I think plants for me are fabulous beings to think with um, because they are so radically different, right? They really push the boundaries of our ability to empathize, to anthropomorphize. They make us radically rethink intelligence, cognition, perception, right? Beyond the frame of brains and neurosystems. And those are big challenges. I think they unsettle us and we need to be unsettled. Plants help us do that work of unsettling um, in all senses of the word. Um, and it'll take time to, um, you know, rethink some of these basic paradigms in terms of how we understand intelligence or cognition or a brain or sentience. Um, but if, if there's any time to start doing that radical rethinking, I think it's now. Another area of interest for folks in the network is education. Quite a few of us are educators. Quite a few of us consider ourselves students still. Um, so I was wondering um, how you identify yourself. Do you consider yourself a teacher, a student, or both? And how do you either practice or envision learning with plants? Fabulous question. Um, I think I definitely would identify as both a learner and a teacher. Um, I mean, I think they work just so synergetically, the one with the other. So, you know, I teach formally here at the University of Sydney. I, in fact, I just finished teaching a semester on the Anthropocene. Um, and rest assured, plants were a big part of the curriculum and also many assessments. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I learn something whenever I teach. Um, students are a font of experience and also of anxiety about the future of this planet that first of all makes me realize you know that we are of different generations in a way that is um yeah very stark you know they, they are deeply anxious about the climate and there is a lot of guilt um in australia here around you know the consequences of settler colonization for environmental you know landscapes and also indigenous communities of course in this deeply vexed um continent um so i learn about what the ethical stakes are for the next generation through my teaching it's the best way for me to come to understand what they want to know and why they care and 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 what is to be done right thinking with ruth gilmore that is always the question they ask we're learning all these concepts theories and then and then what what is to be done and i think it's such a difficult question and i i'm so i don't feel that i have the tools to offer them in terms of the solutions uh, but i can see that the urgency is in the doing uh, and the doing together and that's a beautiful and moving a mo moving thing that comes to me every time i teach um i mean I, I, for me the 
the learning part, of course, has been with primarily with, you know, my peers in the university, but primarily actually with indigenous peoples whom I work with in Papua, right? And, you know, doing fieldwork is about apprenticeship. It's about learning from scratch or relearning or unlearning all of the givens and of your own sort of cultural and social habitus um, or upbringing. And it's it's difficult, but it's incredibly um, illuminating and generative because it makes you, um, you know, it 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 encourages a relativistic stance towards the world that is not about judgment or imposing your ideals, but rather about being open again to difference um, and thinking about ethics as situated. And, you know, in some ways, always more of some world than others, as partial and as patchy. And maybe it's okay to move beyond kind of absolutist sort of ethics and think through, again, relations and relationality. Um, but again, that's always shot through with power and and who gets to determine, uh, you know, which relations matter and which ones are good and which ones are less good, perhaps. Um, or as Indigenous scholars say, you know, what is right story and what is wrong story? Um, and I'm borrowing the words of Tyson Porta here. Um, so for me, you know, education, uh, it's something that happens in the classroom. You know, I think I, I very much am on the same page as um, I think it's Audrey Lord who talks about the classroom as the most radical space of possibility. Um, yes, uh, I, I firmly believe that. But I also think that so much of education happens outside of the boundaries of you know, formal institutions at universities. Um, my assignments invite students to go out and hang out with plants and um, to describe that encounter, to um, deploy their bodies as methods in sensing that environment and to use their emotions as well, their affects, to think, feel their way through um, climate change and um, its implications for plants and animals, plants, humans and other animals. Um, so I think um, encouraging those sorts of experiential assignments that are about forging more creative ways of thinking and you know that are also critical and capacious is absolutely key um and for me education is also about moments of coming together where it's about finding ways to deal with the challenges and the wars and the violence but also about finding your allies and this is difficult this is this is treacherous work right it's attritive um uh, changes are happening so fast around us so i think it's just as important to educate with the aims of ends of finding solutions as it is to educate with the ends of finding community and uh, because community you know is what will hold us um through those through those through those rocky waters through those rough waters and through these changing landscapes and i think we need a bit of both speaking of hope um is there a plant or a set of plants um that gives you hope i think i think i'm going to go back to the sago palm for this one kate um simply because um although there's nothing simple about it um it is a plant that to me and to the people whom i work with embodies hope like no other um you know this is a plant that is continue to thrive in out of the way resource frontiers that are being decimated by monocrop developments this is a plant that spreads through its suckers um, underground, across ground. Um, it 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 reproduces in sometimes uh, you know less than perceptible ways um, at the bottom of marshes and mangroves and swamps. Um, it is a plant uh, that uh, you know has learned over time to craft symbiotic relations with all manner of fungal, bacterial, mammalian, and other vegetal communities of life. 
Um, it is a plant that also uh, nourishes peoples um, across the tropics. It's a source of food for so many forest-dependent communities in Indonesia um, you know, and across Southeast Asia, really, Melanesia and Oceania. It's a plant for me that also um, speaks to you know, the spiritual, right? In so many parts of the world where it glows, it's not just a plant being, it's also a spirit. It's an ancestor. It uh, calls for reverence and, and respect by virtue of its um, of its pasts, of its origin stories, of the world that it has created and co-composed with other spirits and other ancestors. Uh, and I think that element of the spiritual um, in some ways matters to the story of the ethical. Um, perhaps it does need to be injected through uh, more of our everyday lives, you know, not in a um, way that is performative or tokenistic, but that acknowledges that in fact, sacrality is always somehow part of the story, right? And for me, Sego teaches, Sego teaches me that story and um, of the, the spiritual that perhaps we need in crafting what Felicity Amaya Schaefer, who's a Shikana um, feminist theorist, calls sacred science, right? As one word, we think about science as secular. Maybe, in fact, we need to think about it as more, more non-secular than we might expect. Um, so sacred science for me is a lesson that perhaps Sego Palm teaches us. So I think I'll I think I'll I'll end by paying tribute to a plant that has accompanied me in so much of my research and that I regularly go and visit here at the Bot Botanical Gardens in Sydney and that I think has um, certainly nourished me, um, literally, but also intellectually in terms of thinking about um yeah yeah plant human futures and possibilities right um is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience that we haven't gotten a chance to discuss yet um, I mean, I think the only last thing I want to add, uh, and I'm sure many of the auditors in this program will be familiar with their work, um, but uh, as, you, as you can tell, a lot of my scholarship is inspired by Indigenous ways of being, Indigenous ways of knowing. Um, I do want to reiterate that I am not Indigenous myself, uh, and also that I operate within a discipline, anthropology, that has long been tethered to the imperial project. Um, so, you know, a big part of the ethical work, I think, of thinking through more than human relationships is also about acknowledging one's positionality in these in these matters and the sort of forms of power and privilege inherited or created that are part of these um, um, ethical conundrums that we are facing as we try to um, work our way through what it means to do justice to and live justly with plants. Um, and so for me, um, that work has demanded um, an engagement with indigenous um, scholarship and scholars. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, of course, is the first who comes to mind. If anyone hasn't read it, I could not, um, I can't encourage you enough to, to delve in that work. Um, the work of Christine Winter, who is a fabulous Maori scholar and political theorist who has really helped me think through questions of multi-species justice through through Maori epistemologies. Um, Craig Santos Perez, who's a poet, uh, Chamorro poet, um, again, another key figure um, who has helped me think, feel through the question of how poetry and poetics can also act as incredibly powerful political tools in storing plants, plantations, and the plantation scene, as some have called it. And so, yeah, just I just wanted to... Um, in closing, pay tribute to these Indigenous scholars who have been so much at the heart of helping me um, metabolize um, the knowledges that I've been entrusted with by the communities in Papua, whom I work with, um, and just an invitation to, again, return to these knowledges that are there, that are rich, that are actionable, that are about community, uh, and that really make us rethink plants as persons in unexpected and ultimately incredibly enriching ways across Indigenous, non-Indigenous divides, across Global North and Global South divides, and through the movement 
movements um, of plants themselves as beings that have, you know, um, that seem to be sessile, that have, but that never, in fact, have stay still, that are always on the move, and that have much to teach about, much to teach us about the kinds of movements and communities that we might want to build in making, um, you know, counterplantation futures and um, more plant people centric and kinds of communities. Great. We'll make sure to provide links to all of those sources as well in the show notes. Um, if people want to follow you and your work, um, where should they look for you? Um, so if anyone's interested to follow up on my work, uh, the best place to go to would be my website, um, www.morethanhumanworlds.com. Uh, I update regularly with publications, news pieces, but also far more interestingly, I find um, I, produ I produce short trailers for my publications. They're about one minute long and they're kind of an expression of my kind of multimodal practice. Uh, texts are great. Videos, I find, just kind of bring readers in in a different kind of way. So if you want to have a little bit of a trailer teaser experience, go check out the website. All the clips are there. Um, and also I'd um, love to be in convers conversation and dialogue with anyone who wants to follow up uh, and dig deeper into plant human relations um, in the Southeast Asia region where I work in Australia and well beyond. Great. Thank you again so much for joining us. It's been just such a pleasure to connect with you and learn more about your approach and, and just, yeah, it's just so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for the gift of the conversation, Kate. It was actually such a joy um, to, to speak with you, to share and to revisit and reanimate um, what I do also by reminding myself of why I do it. And I think conversations like that really help do that work. So thank you. Great. Um, if you're interested in the network, feel free to find us at networkingwithplants.org, or you can email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for joining us for this engaging conversation. Um, and until next week, take care. music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.